This video moves a bit outside my normal space of competence and into one that is a bit less familiar to me, and that is gender and sexuality. I try to make a comparison between two rituals. The first ritual is what might be just the single weirdest passage in the entire literature on pre-Christian Nordic religion, the Völsathotter, a narrative where Olaf the Holy Haraldsson witnesses the strange cult of the Völsi, a horse's phallus, which is passed around and worshipped with alliterative Norse poetry, right? And the other ritual is an queer erotic Afro-Brazilian ritual that I participated in and recorded on film. How about that? Back in 2014, I was doing anthropological fieldwork in the Afro-Brazilian religion, Candomblé. Uh, you'll notice the gringo there in, in the image. And here I uh, participated in and filmed a ritual whose likeness I had never seen, except in one place, and that is the Vosa Thotter, a narrative where Olaf the Holy witnesses this cult of the Vosi, a horse's phallus, which is worshipped with Norse poetry. Um, I'm going to show you my Brazilian recordings here in this video, courtesy of the documentarist Linus Merck and the Candomblé house Ilhaxi Tafarode and the goddess Bombashira, who actually charged us with showing this to the world. Uh, and I'll try to use the remarkable similarities uh, between these two rituals to try to understand what the actual flip is going on in the Velsa Thotter. Um, I'll not go into the considerable methodological discussions of problems about comparison and all that, and why, what we might learn from it is a little bit more the scholarship side. And also, let me just uh, start by clearly stating that this is erotically inflected content uh, in this video, and that is purely and exclusively educational. This is uh, research material gathered during scholarly data collection. It's and it, it's content that I'm presenting here is in fact a scholarly paper uh, reflecting on comparative method and gender and cosmology. And I'm a scholar of history of religions. I've been presenting this on different conferences. And though there is sexual suggestion here, there's no literal sex taking place, no human genitalia, and uh, there's zero intention in this to sexually gratify the viewer. Um, this is here solely for educational purposes uh, and to kind of bring on understanding and reflections on some very strange sources of uh, uh, pre-Christian North, North European religion. So some of those sexual trigger warnings should probably go on, go on here. If you belong to the segment of people for whom the sight of something other threatens your mental health, then proceed at your own peril. Um, uh, when I announced my presentation of this stuff at the Heathen Women United Conference recently, I got reactions from uh, from people for whom this Norwegian and Brazilian queer ritual affronted their illustriously uber-masculine uh, imagination of pre-Christian Nordic religion. But guys, this Afro-Brazilian ritual that I'm going to show you is just the most life-affirming, magnificently erotic, queer polytheism, which is performed by some of the most wisest and kindest and most joyful people that I've ever encountered, right? But before we come to that, let's just have a little look at the Velsi ritual. The Velsa Thotter described, describes how Olaf the Holy visits a small household in northern Norway uh, who, who practices 
the cult of the Volsi, a horse's phallus preserved with herbs. It is the lady of the house who introduces the Volsi and praises it with a verse. She concludes with a chorus where the figure Mernia is asked to receive this blow to this offering. Then a verse that passes the Volsi to the next person, the man of the house, and he surprisingly recites, If I had had anything to say, I wouldn't have had this ritual at all. Um, so the man of the house, in his participation in the ritual, says that he, he, he'd wish that he didn't have to participate. It's weird, but remember that. The, father, uh, the man's son, the son of the house, then received the Volsi, and he's teasing his sister with it. It's absolutely hilarious. The sister receives it. She displays resilience and piety. She prefers the uh, worship of the presumably chaste goddess Givyun. <laughs> the serf uh, just says that he would have preferred something to eat. This looks like a kind of a social stereotype. The serf woman or slave woman desires sexual intercourse with it. right? And then the guests, the disguised followers of, of Olaf, say some irrelevant stuff. And the disguised Olaf asserts his position as Christianizer king, right? As a Christian, well, a little bit like the people who run social media platform and, you know, outright Arsatruas, he sees this ritual phallus as an abomination, not as an affirmation of life, joy, power, and so on. So he throws it to the, go uh, to the dog and then instructs these savages in the true faith. And this... Is basically the narrative of the Volsathotter, right? Different suggestions have been made in order to align the figures of the narrative with better known characters from Norse myth. Particularly, the Volsi has been identified with the god Freyr. I think uh, that is its own discussion and I regard it as a possibility. But in this context, I want to emphasize another figure um, as addressed by uh, Gro Steinsland and others, and that is the Mörnir. Uh, the idea suggested uh, by these scholars identify the Mörnir with Jotun women, possibly Dísir. That is a, a kind of femininity that is socially, perhaps cosmologically, transgressive. It's been suggested that the women of the house embody or perhaps invoke female Yatnar representing a sexual encounter with the Vanya deities as iconized in mythology of Njörður and Freyr marrying Skadi and uh, Gerðar, right? Now, following that, we could uh, see the Volsi ritual as a manifestation, invocation of transgressive, perhaps extra-social, social, perhaps even anti-social, sexually powerful, dangerous femininity, right? And I'm not sure that there's a scientific cons uh, consensus on this question. That probably totally isn't. But this is surely one of the strongest suggestions for how to analyze the Mörnir uh, figure. In my recordings uh, from Brazil, a candomblé uh, uh, ritual addresses the goddess called Bombashira, and she's a female version of the trickster Eshu, and thereby she represents a transgressive, dangerous, megasexual, and powerful femininity. Now, candomblé is sometimes called uh, a queer matriarchal cult. It's mostly led by women and homosexual men. However, auxiliary priests and priestesses, percussionists, sacrificial priests are often heterosexual. Uh, when men are embodying spirits, uh, they are mostly homosexual. Following Steinsland, uh, the ritual play uh, is, a, is a cult 
directed at this probably transgress, uh, transgressive femininity in the Dos uh, uh, and both these rituals uh, centers on bringing the phallus to people who have to receive it. In Norway, the Mardnir is invoked in connection to the human receiving the, the Vilsi, right? Thigi Mardnir Theta uh, Blurti. Receive Mardnir, this offering. In the Vilsi ritual, uh, and, and as in the Vilsi ritual, this Brazilian ritual takes place in a private home, which for the occasion has been transformed into, into the temple. Uh, the Brazilian uh, goddess is also you know, a powerful, transgressive, feminine force. In a comparable way, the main cultic action is passing around a phallic object between participants, thereby putting these people who receive the phallus in the metaphorically feminine position of being sexually receptive, right? Bombashira quite explicitly formulates this as a cultic act for her. In, in Brazilian Portuguese, also drinking with, bebe com, parallels eating with, which is a common ritual metaphor for partaking in a sacrifice, hence the singing, bebe com amai. Uh, uh, ritual liturgy uh, euphemizes the sexual aspect and address each person receiving the phallus, again in both these rituals. Brazil has drinking with mother, euphemizing fellatio. In Norway, there's a similarly ambiguous wordplay in the passing of the vulsi, pray to vulsi, carry vulsi, receive vulsi, squeeze vulsi, and so on. Uh, notice, by the way, this, this almost iconically culture-specific touch. In the Norse context, it's improvised kind of uh, poetry. Uh, it's very Norse, while in Brazil it's this samba funky cannibal drumming and singing. I don't know, I just think it's funny that it's so cultural iconic, yet so very similar what's going on in these two rituals. In both settings, receiving the phallus metaphorically implies a sexually feminine position. In both settings, persons perform their sexual identity in the way they relate differently uh, back to the phallus. 
both these rituals name the persons being addressed in the ritual verse and the way that they react suggests uh, uh, the implication of a metaphorically sexual reception in, in both these rituals. When you receive a phallus, you are a woman sexually receiving it. That's what is, is, is implied. In the case of the slave girl, this is explicit, as in, in the case of the bombashira actually doing fellatio on the phallus, it's fairly explicit. <laughs> Um, but as mentioned, this becomes problematic if you are the kind of man who generally prefers to have sex with women. Then you display reluctance, but you still do it or end up doing it, except if you happen to be Saint Olaf, right? The participants uh, affirm the sexuality in the way they relate back to the phallus. It's basically as if they are asked, do I want to have sex with this? Um, Brazilian machos, as they actually call men who prefer to have sex with women, they cross themselves and try to drink from the side of the cob and display resilience and disgust. Some just seem to go, oh, damn, let me get this old oh, with it. Right. One guy, the leading heterosexual organ, uh, he's the highest status heterosexual man in this cult. See, see what happens with him. He tries to avoid being involved in it. Goddess uh, possessing the head priests insists that he drinks from the cup. And there's a quite tense negotiation that plays out here. He tries to assert himself when his sexual identity is being transgressed in this almost abusive way.
like the man of the house in Norway, both these men who prefer to have sex with women try to go, no, 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 this is too much for me. I don't want to be part of this. But they don't really succeed in ex exiting the ritual, right? Isn't that great? Exactly that happens in both these two rituals. And it happens to persons in uh, very similar uh, positions. The contextual heterosexual patriarch. It is the man of the house in Norway and it's the Ogang here in Brazil. Uh, who is socially below the homosexual head priest, uh, certainly, and, and certainly, of course, when the uh, head priest is embodying the goddess. But he is the highest ranking macho, right? In both these rituals, there are guests present. Uh, in Brazil, it's me and the cameraman. And uh, there's an element of play in both these rituals. This element also results in tension in both these rituals, and it actually breaks out into conflict with more patriarch patriarchalist leaning figures present. It decidedly gets too much for someone macho who ends up verbally affronting the whole affair. Exactly that also happens in both these rituals. In, in Norway in 1029, it's Saint Olaf again, and in Brazil, let's see what happens. Again, it is the leading Ogang here, and it really seems as if he almost speaks out against the whole thing, actually. People sort of applauded, but were actually annoyed with him after the celebration. And the celebration just continued uh, without any noticeable decrease in, in the carnivalesque and transgressive sexual performance. Right? So this is just to say that from the Brazilian perspective, the conflictual element doesn't look as if it has to be something that may have emerged in the, in the, in the Christian portrayal. The ritual before uh, all of the holy showed up wasn't necessarily all sane and harmonious and coherent. It could have uh, been already a scene for playing out tension and negotiation between uh, different constructions of sexuality in that context. The Brazilian uh, ritual totally is that. And they didn't have some ultra-violent missionary king showing up, trying to brainwash everybody, reducing Occidental culture to that sexually inept state. Uh, that means that I still today have to disclaim all over the place before even showing these images, right? I think the ritual is in itself carnivalesque and tension-filled. It's not a kind of a pristine, harmonious thing, which then got muddled up by rupturing Christian description. Right? It, it seems inherently charged with social inversion and therefore tension, you know, as when a slave woman is suddenly given a stage to really step up and take this super proactive role in front of a timidly meek and underplayed man of the house. This is a radical social inversion going on. In Brazil, a homosexual slave descendant who uh, is perhaps somewhat marginal to uh, dominant social norms embody a deity of a class that can be identified as slaves. Uh, also notice, by the way, the elements of, of uh, humor in Brazil. It's actually hilarious what's going on. 
But the ritual also unfolds a deeply religious devotion at the same time. These deities are literally participating. These gods are there, yet it is dense with humor. Cool, what does all this mean? <laughs> First, does it necessarily mean anything or is it just play, ritual play? And I actually think that it is play, but play is play because it plays on something, on the backdrop of a structure of things. It becomes effective as play because of an underlying structure. It's a little bit like it's our pre-existing uh, knowledge that makes a joke possible. If I say a Lokian, an Odinist, and a Reconstructionist walks into a bar and then continues with the joke, then the play that I make in the joke makes sense because of the underlying knowledge that the people hearing the joke share. The joke could be incomprehensible for people who don't share this knowledge, right? So play is not just play. It's play on something. And I think these rituals might play on the cosmic order of things. And this might sound kind of lofty to compare these playfully queer rituals to cosmology, but I actually think it is Christocentric idea, actually, that the structure of cosmos need to be something boring and dreary and not something that you manifest in play while you're laughing your ass at this awkwardly heterosexual anthropologist who's all dorky there trying to avoid giving fellatio to a ritual fantasy, right? Let us take a quick look at the underlying cosmology in Brazil. Candomblé has a sexual trickle-down cosmology. Gods are powerful and that makes them structurally masculine and they penetrate less powerful structurally feminine humans. It's rather masculinist actually. Um, in possession. They penetrate in possession. But when that cosmology becomes enacted, then it produces an explosion of transgressions of heteronormativity. For instance, if I were to be possessed by the sweet and gentle love goddess Ushun, you know, then I would be the sexually feminine recipient of Ushun as a masculine force because she's a goddess and she's penetrating me as a human, right? Therefore, heterosexual men mostly do not possess incandibly because they are feminized by it. And I've experienced many times that guys in Candomblé came to me and said, hey, wh what do your partner say about you being in Candomblé all the time? Because it compromises your masculine force. And uh, right, and, and this seems very similar somehow or resemblant to the Nord Nordic notions of Ergi, the man feminized by religious involvements of some sort. And by the way, I think this is purely rooted in patriarchal notions of social power, because when it comes to sexual power, it's actually not the case. If anything, condomly practice and possession increases your sexual drive, uh, probably because it has purifying aspects, so, I don't know, things flow a little bit more. Um, this sexual scheme, by the way, is really about, or related to, a really important concept. Objectification. Gods manifest through objectification. For instance, objectification underlies possession. A god is being objectified when it inhabits a physical body of a person, right? This is at the core of this kind of religion. And it's really important to understand the religious implications of uh, objectification. 
Because, for instance, you see loads of mo motifs of objectification in contemplation, for instance, becoming a thing, becoming a matter. Deities are typically imagined as violent, militant. Historically, they've sometimes been imagined as white people. Uh, for enslaved Africans, this is an obvious marker of being a violent, abusive bastard, like gods, uh, being a white person, right? Slavery is also a common ritual theme. There's a steep social hierarchy in this kind of religion. Why? You know, because it supports objectification. There are few forms of culture that foster fragility less than candomblé. Initiation seeks, your, uh, seeks out your triggers and presses them as hard as it possible. You know? Now, we live in this reality where something that ever so slightly affronts what we identify to towards will make us positively flip. And this, by the way, counts for both political wings. People mostly accuse lefties of being snowflakes. I'm a lefty myself. But right-wingers are exactly the same. You know, they whine and howl like toddlers if there's Islam in their public space or God save us if there's something queer inside, you know. And I think this is a general tendency to our time. Um, and all this is a slightly different discussion. Uh, but my view is that our present culture removes us from connectedness. And this makes our subjectivities brittle, touchy, you know, and therefore less permissive to the other, that outside us, thereby also the other than human. Um, our subjectivity becomes less relational. And this fragility is a hyper kind of subjectivity thing. It's almost a kind of an anti-initiating aspect of our present culture. And it's part of the reason that we need... Uh, initiation so badly. Uh, if you com compare to Candomblé, look at how almost abusively compromising, you know, uh, th this goddess uh, ha has a go at these heteromasculine identities here. I think the point is to give people a little healthy ordeal, massage, mold their subjectivities a little bit. This doesn't hurt. It's actually fun, you know. And uh, this doesn't just count for these machos. In initiation, cannibal initiation, black women who are the close descendant, descendants, not the distant descendants, descendants, of the most atrocious and genocidal case of New World enslavement, they gave ritually enslaved, metaphorically raped, bought, sold, tied to deities that are portrayed with the colonial trappings of power, even sometimes portrayed as, as white people. Why? You know, because objectification creates the preconditions for possession. You need to strike at human subjectivity if you want to make it relational uh, to other than humans. Animist culture molds subjectivity to make it relational. And this is why people have ritual ordeals. And it's why many pre-colonized cultures avoid self-referencing. This has been observed particularly among uh, pre-colonized Native Americans. Animism has this aspect of anti-identitarianism. Right. And I think this is why this vulgar, transgressive ritual play is there. You know, it, 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 is, it is a molding of people's uh, subjectivity by challenging it, by giving it a bit of good humor punches, basically. Uh, in this case, it's the uh, machos that are in the receiving end of it. And by the way, this uh, objectification thing, I think it's super important to understand. I regularly see people who are involved in the Arthur True Heathendom complex uh, struggling with the fact that deities are militant, violent rapists, 
But regardless of the fact that Iron Age Scandinavia was indeed a violent age, I still don't think that this reflects social values. Christian Franks were about as violent as Vikings. These are motifs of objectification, right? Cannibalism is a queer matriarchal, super inclusive religion. It also has super militant deities. Even the sweetest and gentlest love goddesses are also warriors with swords and fire and black magic who in possession will effeminize a poor heterosexual man who happens to be receptive to trance by metaphorically raping him, you know. The point of this militancy and violent symbolism is not social values. It's objectification as a piece of animist technology, right? Cool. Rand over. <laughs> um, this was a bit of a sidetrack, perhaps a topic for another video. But the... Phallus here in Carnomblé is an objectifier. The phallic stick is an insignia of the trickster issue. The ogo, uh, meaning a club or a weapon, it's an objectifier. In Norway, the phallus becomes from a horse, and this is also really extreme somewhat. Uh, you know, the possession, possession is important in, in Carnomblé, and the phallus is the objectifying penetration of the human body of a powerful deity. Cool. The phallus objectify and creates imminence possession. And this is important in the dynamism of this trickle-down cosmology that I describe in Kanombe. So with inspiration from this stuff, we could perhaps look at the Nordic context uh, for an order of, con uh, of cosmos where powerful forces objectify humans. And where, uh, you know, working this objectification might form the base of effective invocations, ordeal, ritual, fetish, imminence, these kind of things. There are a couple of examples where there are indeed a very candomblé kind of sexual relation between gods and humans um, suggested in Nordic material. And this might be linked with the ergi complex, a little bit like you know, a priestess being the wife of Freyr uh, and religious cases of transgendering and so on. But uh, this doesn't feature that prominently in the Eddas. There's also, by the way, one uh, rather extreme case, which is skaldic poetry, where battle death is seen as a queering, effeminizing of the penetrated warrior. And I think those outriders who attack a mosque and shout, Valhalla, here I come, and all that, I think they should perhaps know this. You know, the battle death, death is perhaps the sacred sexual act of being taken as a woman by your uh, enemy. Um, Take a look at this Brazilian cop here. It unites sexual symbols, the symbolic genitals uh, the trickster cre the, of the trickster creator, the phallus and the yoni, right? Uh, symbols of creation. So could we speculate in the general presence, you know, possible meaning of phallic symbols and containers in the Nordic myth and ritual? I would suggest it, you know. What is, for instance, this thing with horns? These are implements that, like the Brazilian cup, unites the feminine container with a perhaps phallic penetrating object. Perhaps the, uh, does the symbol, uh, does, also does the Vilsi ritual imply some kind of playful mirroring or mockering on the common motif of a woman bringing a horn to an arriving warrior? Right? The lady of the house is bringing a horse's phallus. It might just be my twisted mind, but I find the mirroring between these two figures absolutely hilarious. <laughs> um, perhaps we could also look with new eyes at other sexual symbolisms in the Nordic context. The lady of the house places the phallus in the lap 
you know, perhaps a little bit like Distaff's. He's also phallic tools, and they rest in the lap of, the, of a woman. The Thor's hammer, another phallic symbol engraved, typically found with women. It's placed in the lap in, in the Thrymskvida, right? Like the Vulsa is placed in the, in the lap. Is there an, an irony going on on, on more uh, norm, normative in that context, ritual actions? Right, and also I should say that somebody with a much better understanding of the whole ergi and sexuality of Sather and all that stuff should probably watch this video and say more about it. But there are also differences between these two rituals, of course. Um, one significant difference is the reality of the phallus, the reality status of the phallus. In the Brazilian context, that cop is not what Brazilians call an ache a power-charged object. It is just a symbol of something, of the, the phallus, right? <laughs> uh, isn't actually a penis. And I know this because I asked them a lot about the difference between these two things. The phallus is not an iba, a fetish object, inhabited by a deity. And they do build that, and this is the central part of Canon Blaze, this fetish technology. The Norwegian phallus, however, I'm almost absolutely certain it is an imminent fetish. It is not just a symbol because it is an actual horse's penis. It doesn't just represent what it is, it is it, right? It is the body of, not the symbol of. And I think, uh, like, it, it, you could compare this, it is the deity like the possessed priest in the Brazilian context is the deity. So a deity associated with horses and with masculine sexual power, that doesn't seem like a bad bit, actually. Now, it'd be, I, I mean, if you want, just wanted a representational symbol, then you'd have carved it in wood. That would have been so much more useful and practical in so many ways, right? <laughs> um, the Volsi is the imminent body of a deity or force somehow in Brazil. It is the transgressive femininity that is imminent in the body of the possessed priest. But what does that do to the whole thing? In Norway, the phallus is imminent present, and the mernir, the transgressive femininity, seems invoked, but less physically present. In Brazil, the trickster femininity is imminent in possession, and the phallus is only symbolically there, right? Perhaps it's just different leaning in these two rituals, where both aspects are clearly necessary. One has manifest imminent phallus, and the other has manifest transgressive goddess. But the thing is also... You know, does there really have to be an underlying consistency even inside one of these contexts? Because this is play and people do it because it's fun and important, right? So I don't know, you know, is, is there a, a slight leaning in the balance between imminence and representational models? Does it have to mean anything? I'm not really sure, actually. Right. So in conclusion, I've, I've heard of Nordic, some of those Nordic armchair scholars who basically rejects the Volsi ritual and says it's simply too grotesque. It has to be the ramblings of a sexually deranged medieval monk or something. You know, but I think that one thing the ritual uh, in Brazil does is that it gives us a live, lived image of what this kind of ritual may have felt like and that this could certainly be a realistic rendering. Humans can actually get, in, get the idea of performing pretty much exactly this kind of ritual. Um, also, the, 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 there is the deep devotional reverence for other than humans 
in a ritual that is humoristically and transgressively sexual. The Bombashiras and perhaps the Maranirdisir, they are honored through this humoristic sexual play. The Brazilian ritual also does play with really fundamental cosmological structures. You know, cosmological structures that imply gender notions that feel very closely aligned with the Ergi complex. So perhaps this cosmology thinking, this cosmology thinking could open other lines of thinking and questions that can be brought uh, out to the rest of our no uh, knowledge of Nordic religion. Like sexual cosmology, Ergi complex, fetishism, uh, and I would particularly say objectification. This molding subjectivity as a general theme, you know, there's a bit of healthy triggering ordeal going on, I think, in the, in the uh, Brazilian ritual. Mostly in this case targeting macho self-image, perhaps giving macho self-image, sexual identity a little carnivalesque shake-up in order to keep people relational. Yeah, I think the motto of this ritual could very well be what I saw some heathen meme say at some point, but now I can't find it anymore. And that is that a little ergi never hurt anyone. Thank you very much. Não,